When we lived in Mali, I loved to run. It was one of the things that could give me a release of stress in the midst of a very busy life. And I had to run in the morning because the Mali heat was so hot, you didn't want to run when the sun was out. The problem was the terrain was so bad, even the street we lived on was not paved and there were potholes and you were facing a turned ankle very easily. And so I was with this dilemma, how do I run when I can see? And I got this idea, I would drive out to the old airport, park the car in the end of the runway, and I would run the old airport runway, and it would come to the one paved road that went through our part of the uh, town, and I would run that up over the new bridge, and I'd come back. And this was great. I thought I was so brilliant in having discovered this, made my days alive, and I was moving along. And then one day, I came around the corner back towards the car, and I noticed the car door was open. And I thought, well, that's strange. I thought I locked it. And then I got closer, and I realized the back window was gone. Someone had cut the rubber strip and taken the window out, because you could sell that for quite a bit in Mali. Then I noticed that the thing that holds the uh, spare tire was down, and the spare tire was gone. The jack was gone, the toolkit was gone, and even my box of cassette tapes. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know what a cassette tape is, see me afterwards. I'll explain that whole thing. Nothing you can do. I put the a holder of the tire up, and I started going home, and halfway down the old runway, I got a flat tire. So I walked home, and I got someone to help me get a tire, and I went back, and then I forgot I don't have a jack. So I went and got a jack and came back and I put the tire on and went home. I then proceeded in the next 24 hours to have seven more flat tires. Eight flat tires in a 24-hour period. We had tubes back then. And all it took was a piece of metal on what was considered a road to give you a flat tire. To add to that, we had a power surge at two different times. We lost several power... Um, what are those called? Surge protectors. We lost a refrigerator and we lost a computer. Now, I had experienced trouble in Mali before. I had had shigella, I had had boils, I had had dysentery, I had had heat rash that covered my whole body, I had had malaria, I had been caught in riots, I had had inconveniences, and I, we had just experienced the difficulty of living in the majority world. But this one put me over the top. I looked at God and I said, really? It was maybe a little bit different than when you heard from Paul and Silas in their prison experience. Now, I've learned a lot about how the Lord can give you joy in the midst of difficult circumstances over the course of my life, and I would like to say that's the last time that my circumstances caused me to lose joy. But all I have to do is remember yesterday that that's happened to me. We start this new series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're calling it All Things Through Christ. All Things Through Christ. And today we begin at the core of the very message that Paul gives us, I believe, that is cause for us to have joy that's not dependent on our life circumstances. That there is a possibility in Christ Jesus that His presence in us can change us so much that our circumstances will not affect us. In fact, looking at Paul's own example, we get to enter into this story. 
I think joy is the antidote to surviving the brokenness of our world, even as God is using us as his ambassadors in his restoration project against that darkness. So I think there's something very important for us. So we have to begin with the author. Now, as you know, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the whole process. But in that process, he gave a message to Paul that was meant for a church in a local setting named Philippi that was meant for us today. So let's begin with that story. Let's begin with Paul himself, the book of Acts. Let me just give you a few reminders of this passage that you've heard, what's going on. Luke is the writer. Luke is the only Gentile writer in the whole Bible. All the other uh, writers were Hebrew uh, background people. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He tells us in the beginning, he wrote it so that you would have certainty of your faith. As someone who hadn't experienced Jesus, like Matthew or Peter, who Mark dictated for, or John, he went back and researched the life of Jesus because he knew that we would need to have our faith rooted in certainties. The core of the whole Gospel of Luke is Jesus getting to Jerusalem. If you read Luke, it kind of pinnacles in chapter 9 where it says, Jesus set his gaze to George Jerusalem. Jesus' love and purpose and meaning in life was going to be fulfilled completely in Jerusalem, as we know at the cross and the resurrection. So as Luke writes this, later on he thinks, I need to write a little bit more because it's not just the gospel story of Jesus and his first disciples. This church has been advancing out to the ends of the earth. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles, as we call it, but some of the churches called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's really the Holy Spirit working through people to make things happen, uh, is about how this faith that begins in Jerusalem moves all the way out to the ends of the earth as people knew it in that day. It's funny. So Luke, into Jerusalem, the Gospel of Luke into Jerusalem, and now the Acts of the Holy Spirit out to us and to the ends of the earth. And a key person in that is this guy named Paul that we get in prison today. Now, when we're introduced to him early in the book, in chapters 5 and 6, his name is Saul. And in that moment, he's persecuting the church. He feels this new movement behind Jesus that's called the way is not the way. And he's doing everything to put it out. In fact, he's the one giving validation to Stephen being stoned and killed for his faith. Paul has his come-to-Jesus moment. It's in Acts chapter 9. Uh, actually, it's Jesus coming to Paul. None of us comes to Jesus. Jesus comes to us. It's always in that direction. He's going to Damascus specifically to take out other Christians. The Lord sends this bright light, knocks him off his horse. The, re the risen Christ speaks to him and not only gives him a new identity, but gives him a new purpose. His name at this moment goes from Saul to Paul. His identity becomes in Christ, and his new purpose, the Lord says, you are going to be a witness to the Gentiles and to the kings of Gentiles. But the Lord adds this one thing, I'm going to show you how much you're going to have to suffer for me. And this was his process. Where we pick it up in Acts chapter 16, it's Paul's second missionary journey. He's moving around the then Mediterranean basin, and the word of Jesus is growing. 
Uh, The reason he goes to Philippi, if you read earlier in the chapter, I encourage you to read this chapter later in the day, it's a picture of how God reaches people on three different socioeconomic realities in the starting of his church in Philippi. It's a great story. But Paul wants to go another direction, and the Holy Spirit comes to him in a vision. It's a vision of a Macedonian man who says, come over here and give us the gospel. And so Paul interprets this as coming from the Holy Spirit, and so he goes to Philippi. When he gets to Philippi, he meets this woman, Lydia, by a river, and the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit opened her heart to Paul's message. It's the first known convert we know in the Philippi church. The next one is a slave girl who the people are using to predict the future. She has a gift of prophecy, but it's being used for darkness. Paul casts the demon out of the young woman so that she can use her prophetic gift to the glory of God. And this makes everybody angry. And so Paul and Silas end up in prison. So do you have the details of what's happening? This is really important. This is what it says in the text. The jailer received his orders. He put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I know there are a lot of bad situations that have happened to all of us in this sanctuary. I know that. I've walked with some of you through it. But I don't know what could come worse than this is to be put in stocks in a primitive jail. Apart from losing a loved one, I can't think of something that would bring more anguish. And why does Paul get put in prison? For doing the very thing that God called him to do. If you were to do a little diagram here, obedience leads to prison for Paul. Now, we could talk about the miracle that happens and everything else, but what I'm most interested in this morning is Paul and Silas's attitude. Because it really sets up our understanding of what Paul's writing to us in this letter to the Philippians. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Seriously? If God called me to do something and I got there and I was punished for doing it, I doubt that my first reaction is to say, praise God from whom all blessings. Right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, even in our best moments, we'd be grumbling a little bit right now. I certainly would be grumbling. And yet, as he's praising God, a miracle takes place. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do it for you as good as I heard it. There was this pastor from Seattle, a black pastor, and I love the way they get it revved up. I just don't have that much juice to get it revved up. When he was preaching on this, he said, here was Paul and Silas tapping their foot, praising God on the earth. And all of a sudden, the angels joined in in heaven, and pretty soon God started stamping his foot, and there was an earthquake, and the jail came busting open. Incredible picture. There's something to ask me about what's going on with Paul. So we pick it up, this church that was birthed, A couple decades later, Paul wants to write them a letter 
to encourage them in the midst of their struggle. Uh, to be honest with you, well, it's not being honest, it's just being real. This is my favorite epistle because this is Paul at the end of his life. This is the aged Paul. He's embarrassing when he writes to the Galatians. It's a little embarrassing some of the things he writes to the Corinthians. Still, the Holy Spirit's hovering over it, but you see the rawness of how the Holy Spirit uses us just the way we are. He uses Paul just the way he is. But this is Paul. He's walked for some time. But where is he? He writes from prison. The perfect title from this, for this sermon is From Prison to Prison. Now you say, well, there were some good times for him in between. Okay, let me just remind you of some of the things that happened to him. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from, my, from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Flat tires? I'm having a hard time relating to Paul. Someone didn't tell Paul that the message is this, come to Jesus and your life will get better. Some of us heard that in the past at some time. And from prison, he writes this letter to the Philippian church, and I think the very verse that will help us understand this whole epistle, letter, is in verse 4, chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Fourteen times in this short letter, he uses the word joy and rejoice. Not what you're expecting from a person who's in prison. What I hear Paul saying is this, I have joy, you can have joy too. And because this is the word of God, and it's not just spoken to a local sitting in Philippi, it's a word for the church at Stanwich in 2018, the Lord is saying, you can have joy. A joy that will be beyond your circumstances. A joy that will be reflective, not in the level of happiness of what you have, but in the sense of this utter groundedness that makes you live beyond your circumstances. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. So I say, Paul, tell me. Please, tell me. Well, he does in the very first couple of verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Many in your Bibles, you have a little footnote, and it says at the bottom, slaves. We don't interpret it that way in our Scripture today because the idea of slavery that we've experienced, as grueling as it was, was different than the idea of slavery in the ancient world. What Paul is saying is that he was bound to Christ, he had no rights. He had given up everything that he could put his stock in apart from the fact of knowing Christ. And he's going to unfold that for us in the course of this letter. 
Paul is going to say, everything I've put my confidence in in the past, I consider as rubbish now compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ. He's giving the clue for joy. It's not yaj. Come on, stick with me. I know it's cold outside. It's joy. When Jesus becomes everything, when Jesus becomes the first thing, when Jesus becomes the end, when Jesus saturates everything for us, for our families, for our church, for our community, then joy will come. Now, I get it. That's hard work. We're talking about things the mystics talked about for so long, being yielded, being abandoned, being people who find their life in Christ. The ancients called it the Christ life. It's about this process of dying to me, dying to the way the world sets it up, and living to the way God has set it up for us to have joy. Lest we miss it, he goes on, he calls the saints those in Christ Jesus. Later, he says, we are being made complete in the day of Christ Jesus. He talks about his affections for them, which are rooted in Christ Jesus. He talks about them being blameless one day because of Christ. It is through Christ that they are being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Jesus, 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 that is the source of all joy. You can have happiness but it's fleeting. Think about it for a moment. We sang this this morning. You're more than enough for me, Jesus. You're all I need. Okay, I can sing that standing there and I feel really good about it, but if tomorrow God starts taking the things that are most precious of of mine out of my life, is Jesus enough for me? I'm not saying you have to go there. Remember, this is still a grace message. He wants to have you, but he's offering you the kind of depth that comes in the life of Jesus that's joy that will carry it when the winds begin blowing against us. That's the kind of church our country needs. That's the kind of church our community leads. It unfolds in being in Jesus. My so what this morning is quite simple. Your inheritance in Christ Jesus is joy, so take hold of it. Take hold of it. Now, hear what I'm not saying this morning. If we're to talk about having the Christ life, we can't picture a life that's different than how Jesus walked on this earth. I'm not talking about denying your circumstances. I'm not talking about denying the feelings that come your way. I'm not talking about being true to the parts that are broken in our life. In fact, Jesus knew sorrow, fear, abandonment, and desperation as he went to his greatest place of joy. You remember in the garden? He's just one moment away from when he's going to fulfill God's purpose And he sweats what the gospel writer tells us were like drops of blood. So to be Christ-like is not to deny that reality, but it's not allow those realities dictate where we're going. There's also a common sense thing in this. Feelings are a good 
thermometer, but they're not a good thermostat. Feelings are a good thermometer. I need to be alert to my feelings because they're saying something about the temperature of my life, but they're a terrible thermostat. They'll set us in the wrong directions if we're not alert to something greater. Saints, you have an inheritance in Jesus that will carry you no matter what comes your way. But you get it by only pointing and going after Jesus. So what are the robbers of that joy? Well, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Our culture has been giving you liturgies they're mantras that they're repeated to you over and over that tell you that you'll find joy in a different place. And so you're going to have to fight against those. This morning I had this idea. Um, we keep our miles when we travel with One Airlines because we like the perks of being with One Airlines. But every once in a while you have to take a different flight and you get those miles and you don't know what to do with them. And after a year, they send you a note and say, would you like magazines in place of your miles? Anybody else have that happen to them? And I say, sure. And I know that um, I'm never going to read those magazines. I don't have enough time for them. But they just sit there in my house as a reminder of how busy I am. And <laughs> but I thought this morning, I'm going to go pick the last four magazines that came into our house and see what the editorials tell me about 2018. Here's one that's very close to us. It says, the year of you. Uh, by the way, that's the Greenwich Magazine. <laughs> Yodge. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not making any statement about that magazine. I love that magazine. But it's a buried liturgy that's speaking into your life. And I wouldn't be a good shepherd if I didn't warn you about that liturgy. Live your best life now. That's the second magazine. The third magazine, The Year of No Boundaries. So Christianity Today was the next one, and I had hope. The editorials were good. But this was the opening ad of Christianity Today. Are you ready to make your mark? That was the opening ad. See, we bought it as the church as well. The reason there's so little joy is because we're living yaj, we're not living joy. And it's come in finding ourselves in Christ. What's another joy robber? Wealth. Now, immediately we could go to one or two sides, but it doesn't matter how much you have. Wealth itself is a joy robber. If you have a lot, like me, you have the luxury of tying your happiness to things. Right? My happiness and pleasure is tied to a lot of things that I can afford. The people that I served in Mali who didn't have a lot live with this constant idea that if I just got some more, then I would really be happy. Right? 
See, all things basically are amoral in our world. It's what the purpose they have in our life, what they declare. So my now what is this? This is where it gets really hard, church. The seven on the anagram in me wants to tell you an inspiring story so that you can get to the other side. There's only one way to get Jesus, and that's to die to self. There's a pastoral reflex in me that makes, you, makes me want you to feel good. But that's not the message to begin this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Now, on the other side of dying is resurrection. So maybe my seven is kicking back in. But it has to start with dying to everything that we hold so precious and find our identity in and leaving it and allowing Jesus to become everything. You can still be a Christian without doing that, but you will miss the joy. You know what I want for you? I want the best things you could ever have. What kind of pastor would I be if I didn't want you to have the best things? I hope you get lots of happiness. I want lots of happiness. Remember, I'm a seven. But more than anything, I want joy for you. Because I know there's going to come a day where we're not going to be able to stand on our happiness. And the joy of the Lord, it will take us where we need to go. Sandwich, join me. Let's die to self. Let's live to Jesus. Amen.